0: to the Cone cool Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Corona Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and when exactly the half point of a year is. Today I'd like to talk a bit about snarks, uh, mainly a hodgepodge of different uh, things I've been thinking about recently. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is what exactly a snark is, because there's kind of some confusion on the topic, especially when it relates to what exactly you can consider as succinct or not succinct. So from the basics, a snark is a kind of, non-interactive zero-knowledge proof. So zero-knowledge proof, what is that? Well, that's a way of convincing somebody about the correctness of some statement involving public and private values without revealing the private ones. So maybe, you know, given an amount of tax you're claimed to have paid, you wanna prove that uh, your financial statements, which you wanna keep private, or congruent to the amount of tax you actually paid. So given the money you received last year, a salary and different payments you've made, you did pay the right amount of tax. So the statement there is I paid the right amount of tax or which would include all of this calculation you need to do to calculate how much tax you should be paying. The private input is all of your financial statements and the public input would be the amount of tax that you you paid last year, which is publicly known, but at least uh, publicly known to the person verifying this proof. And non-interactive means that you can create the proof uh, sort of in advance and you have this sort of object or blob of data which gets produced, and then somebody else independently at a later time can verify this blob of data without any interaction with you. and. A different kind of proof would be an interactive proof, in which case you need to exchange messages with the prover actively, and at the end of it you don't necessarily have a way to convince somebody else uh, of the proof, whereas if a non-interactive proof, I can sort of share it, it's kind of like a signature. So if I can verify the proof, I can send it to someone else and they can also verify it and check that it's correct. And this is kind of like a signature in that if uh, somebody produces a digital signature, then a bunch of people can verify it independently. And what separates a snork from just a non-interactive zero-knowledge proof is that it's succinct. And the minimum that this must mean is that the size of the proof has to be small. So, generally, when we talk about size, we talk about things sort of asymptotically. So it's relative to some parameter and usually this parameter is sort of the size of the computation or the size of sort of essentially the runtime of the computation. That's sort of the baseline we have. So let's say I'm doing you know 100,000 CPU operations then I base sort of my different measures of how big things or how slow things are based on how many operations I'm doing. So even if I have a very small program in terms of its description, like for x and a thousand, print x, I'd still count that as like a thousand steps. So the prover, you generally want it to be efficient, but the prover just has to sort of be polynomial in this runtime. Generally you want it to be linear, otherwise the prover is quite slow. And then in terms of the proof size for succinctness, you need at the very least, the proof size to be sublinear. So if you have a computation taking n steps, uh, the proof size has to be strictly less than O of n, asymptotically. So what counts as succinct here is sort of a bit of a thing for contention, you know. So, for example, if the size of the proof grows with the square root of n, does that count as succinct? Uh, Some people might say yes, some people might say no, because square root of n is, is strictly... Sublinear, but it, it's still a relatively fast pace of growth. Uh, what a so something where it's sort of undisputably sub uh, sublinear and succinct is logarithmic. So if it grows with a logarithm of n, so for example, if doing two to the twenty operations takes twenty units of uh, of proof size, and doing two to the thirty only takes thirty units of proof size, and that's logarithmic, and that's much much better scaling than square root of n. So Certainly, everybody would agree that logarithmic is succinct. Some people might disagree that square root is succinct. And then you have a bunch of stuff in between. So you have the whole, you know, L functions. You can interpolate between, you know, exponential and sub-exponential. Uh, and then there's also, like, if I have a polynomial in the logarithm, logarithms that is kind of succinct, like if I have log square, like, I think Snarks have this, or, uh, or Starks, rather. So Stark's, uh, at least the the specific Stark's system by Ben Sasson and, and Al, uh, that one has I think log squared proof size. So you know does that count? Uh, personally, I think I think I am in the polylogarithmic camp. I think root of n doesn't count as succinct. That's that I don't. So for example, I don't consider Lagaro to be a snark. Uh, it's certainly cool, but it's, I don't consider I don't, it to be a snark. Uh, and then there's a whole another dimension which is a lot more subtle, and that's the verification time. So here I've sort of talked about this thing where you have a computation with a certain amount of runtime, and so usually the verification time doesn't depend on the runtime of the computation, but more so on its description size. So if I represent the computation as a circuit, these two are the same thing. Because basically there's no like notion of, of execution time in a circuit. I just have a certain amount of gates and sort of the computation is kind of stack. But the number of gates relates to sort of the computation time. And so here the description of the circuit is directly proportional to how long it would take to actually run it. In fact, it's it's more because if you think about a circuit, you could sort of run parts of it in parallel. So, so often, what ends up happening is that a snark may be succinct in terms of its proof size, but it might still have long verification times because you might have a linear verification time in the size of your circuit, and this is, is something that has tripped me up a lot because many 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 snarks don't get get away or avoid this 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 problem in one way or another. And so it's, it's kind of associated with snarks to have sublinear verification. And when we do that, have that property, it's usually called a, a fully succinct snark. At least that's a term I've, I've seen floating around. So there's basically two ways to get... So I've been, I've been saying to get around as if it's like this fundamental issue. and And there is sort of this problem in that if you haven't read the statement, like, how do you know that you're even like verifying the right thing. Because, like, maybe actually I got confused and this proof is, like, for a different thing. Like, maybe I think it's the tax proof, but actually it's a proof about, like, I've maintained my pool, you know, for the past year. It's, like, completely different. So you might think, well, I need to at least read the description of the circuit if I'm the verifier. So there's this sort of kind of lower bound here. So in some sense, you do need to read the entire statement description at some point. You cannot get around that. But there's sort of two ways to cheat. So the first way to cheat is you make uh, the, the description of the circuit very small compared to the execution time. So... Starks do this, for example, but I'm going to talk a bit more about, about the trade-offs of the system later on. But, for example, if I have a program on a CPU, if I do a for loop, I can have a for loop with many iterations but with a constant size description. Because so I say, you know, up to this this upper bound, you just repeat this instruction, or th- this block of instructions. So the description is just the block of instructions and the upper bound, you know. So that's a very short description of a very long-running computation. So then that sort of gets around the issue of needing to read the description, because the description is short, so if the verifier is linear in the description, well, that's fine, because it's, it's still sublinear relative to the running time, whereas the prover is going to be linear relative to the running time of the proof, or the, the statement of the program, rather. That's one way, and that's that's what I call uh, you know the structured computation method, and the second way is what's called preprocessing. So there, the idea is that you have this sort of preprocessing step where you you read the description of the circuit, and you produce like a short summary of it, which can be used then by the verifier, and then the verifier's runtime is only going to be linear in the size of this pre-processed summary. And that allows you to get around the the limitation we had earlier because what you could do is that you just pre-process the circuit once and then you have much faster verification. And this verification can vary its public input. So this is very useful for many real-world applications because if you're say, because often the circuit isn't going to change like constantly, you know. Usually you probably want to vet the circuit to make sure it verifies the right thing, so like the the order of changes on circuit is maybe like at most like once a week or something. Maybe even once a day, but like it's certainly not, it's certainly much less often than you're going to be verifying proofs. And often it can be sort of useful because if I'm doing say a private transaction system, I can sort of pre-process the circuit for this transaction system. And then verify a bunch of you know private transactions, which is varying the public inputs uh, they're presenting along with the proof. And this is also related to sort of the notion of trusted setups. So sometimes some SNARK system require a, a trusted setup, which is also dependent on the circuit. So for each circuit, you have this pre-processing step, where you also have some private you know, byproduct which gets produced which you need to throw away otherwise it could compromise the integrity of the proof. So that's also related to this this thing. And this is how sort of snarks get a lot of snarks get very fast verification time is that they use this preprocessing step. And in some sense you can sort of see the structured computation as a kind of preprocessing. Like it's, it's, it's a, basically a summarized description of a computation. So in some sense, it usually it doesn't work like this because usually you don't like actually process like a circuit and turn it into a structured form because that's quite difficult. So usually, like you want to keep your computation in a structured form to begin with. And this is sort of a, a thing I've been encountering recently uh, because I've been looking into Boolean circuit snarks. And I might be able to get to that today, otherwise it's for another episode, but in, uh, most most uh, snarks are over algebraic or arithmetic circuits, and Boolean circuits are sort of a side thing that people haven't explored too much. So I was reading a, a paper by Kiesa and other people, actually, called uh, Linear Time Probabilistic Proofs Over Every Field by Jonathan Boodle, Alessandro Kiesa, Zee Guan, and Xichi Liu, and so this one basically gives you a snark over any field, including you know boolean, which gives you boolean circuits as a support. And specifically, they support you know R1CS as a language. But the the thing that I didn't realize at first, because I wasn't too familiar with like snark literature, is that uh, the verification time is linear in the size of the R1CS instance, or the size of the circuit, if you want to look at it that way. And The way they get around this is via the first method, which is the structured computation method. So they they use what they call an algebraic automaton. So the way that works is that instead of having just the circuit, instead you you kind of have like sort of a, a CPU, so you have a finite set of registers, and then at each step you move from one state of the machine to another state with the same circuit and you know this can encompass quite a lot of computation but the the trick is that is that your runtime becomes dependent on how big this description of the state transition function is so if you have a small state transition function and you run for a bunch of steps it's fine because your 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 verification time is only going to depend on how complicated your description of the transition is whereas with like if you just use a circuit which they also support then the, if the circuit grows because you have more steps, then your verification time also grows. So by having an automaton you sort of get around uh, this issue. And one problem I've been encountering with automata and general structured computation like this is that it's difficult to support random access memory. So that's where you, you, you sort of start with the machine model, but in addition to sort of registers, you also have access to this bank of memory. And you can read and write to different cells in memory, uh, and you can also read and write to addresses which are a secret. So I can have a variable stored in a register, which you don't know the value of, and then I read or write based on this value. And that's sort of the random access model. And I can read and write in arbitrary order. There's no constraints whatsoever on on how things work. And one naive way to represent this in the automaton or similar models is that you'd have one register for each memory cell. But the problem is that, like, for realistic architectures, if you're trying to emulate, like, RISC-V or an you know, x86 uh, assembly language, then you'd have, like, 2 to the 32 memory cells or something like that and the thing is if you were to compile this ram structure into a circuit you would only pay a cost based on the number of times you access memory so basically if you access memory n times you pay a n log n cost in terms of the number of gates you need uh, the techniques to do this are something i'm writing about uh, but you basically trust me that you can you can sort of compile this to circuits efficiently and get rid of all the ram stuff and that's quite nice but then you have the circuit, and you don't have this structured computation anymore. And if you had a pre-processing boolean snark, then what you could do is you would just pre-process this circuit, and you'd have this nice succinct description, and then you'd be happy, and you could uh, do fun stuff, and you could have RAM in your upstream language and whatnot. With the automaton approach, uh, you you need to do tricks to avoid random access memory. So something I tweeted about today was that. Uh, and VM, which is this interesting project, they use Starks and arithmetic circuits, and specifically Starks need this kind of structured. It's not exactly algebraic automaton, I think, um, but it's it's a it's a very similar approach. We have like sort of finite number of registers and you sort of advance. Uh, you, your computation describes how to transition from one state to the next, and it's the same sort of computation repeated. And so there they do have memory support, and they can do reads and writes. Whereas I think Cairo is only write only, but the the caveat which they weren't exactly clear about was that you have to access memory in a linear order. So if I access address twenty, then I can't access t- ten after that. So like I can access, I could read and write to the same address multiple times. So but it has to like once I move up to the next address, I can't move backwards. So they can also support jumps, so I can move from address ten to twenty but then I can't do 18 because that's before 20. So now I'm stuck at addresses 20 and above, and if I were to write to address 30, but then I can't you know, manipulate 20 anymore. And that's like a, a pretty big restriction. And, and the, the reason why I think it's kind of annoying is related to the reason why you want to support RAM in the first place. So the reason why RAM is useful, which I've hinted at, is that if you want to emulate existing architectures like RISC-V, which are, which people are trying to do do with like the risk zero project, which tries to use risk v as a substrate for zk proofs, then those architectures are built around, uh, you know, a state machine, which includes like the registers and that kind of state, but also this random access memory bank. So, it's very difficult to sort of get rid of the random access memory because you can sort of detect patterns. Let me rephrase that. So if you had a higher level program like you know, program in Python or or something like that, you don't reference you know, reading, writing to memory, you're working with higher level objects. So if you're doing that, it's easier to not end up with RAM. Especially RAM with like secret uh, memory accesses. But if you just have the assembly, it's very difficult to tell you know, to what extent you can extract extract out, you know, structured patterns and replace the RAM with like linear access. And so that's why I'm sort of skeptical about the utility of sort of limited RAM models like this. And it's also what makes uh, manipulating or using these assembly architectures as UziQ-proof substrates so tricky Uh, because it's just... it's... you're just kind of fighting fighting against the model of computation because uh, unless you have a pre-processing snark, if you need any kind of firm or structured computation, you really need to design your VM around it. So I think Maiden does this successfully, but they have their own custom VM structure, which is tailored to fit uh, what kind of structured computation you need for Starks. And if you if you try to do this for this custom assembly, there's so much information that has been lost about the upstream program, which you could have used to get a more structured computation. Because if you think about like an upstream language. There's it, it. It's much easier to sort of get a, get rid of memory entirely because, essentially, like the you only need a, an amount of memory related to. Or you can you can just use registers, like because you could just have a bunch of registers because you only need as much data as you're going to be manipulating locally at any part, point in the program. And so, for many programs, you're not ever going to use that much data. Like you might only have. For cryptographic stuff, like a few kilobytes of data that you're actually using at one point in time. And so if you have control over the high-level language, you can sort of compile it to use very little space because you, you sort of reuse memory between functions or whatever. But this requires sort of control of the whole compilation stack. And the difficult thing in doing in, in doing this is that is that you have to rewrite a lot of the optimizations and a lot of the infrastructure and tooling. Or this language. Now, I think this is sort of inevitable to the extent that you're using arithmetic circuits, because some things are just more costly than than you'd think. So, for example, uh, Miden is a great example of this. Is actually, I'd recommend checking out their docs because there's a lot of interesting like tips and a lot of interesting sort of tricks for implementing real computations on or well, implementing snarks and, and stuff for, for real computations and how to structure your arithmetization there. But anyhow, so they support actual 32-bit integer operations. But the thing is that those are more expensive than 64-bit fuel operations. And which means that if you're writing stuff in a higher level language and you want to start to optimize, you need to be aware of the fact that you have an arithmetic circuit underneath and you need to prioritize specific operations. So this is why, for example, people use specialized hash functions like Poseidon, which are specifically designed to be used over fields. So you need to be aware of like stuff like that kind of pervasively. You can't just use existing programs and libraries that have been written for CPU architectures like x86 and just like expect them to work as performantly as, you, as you'd hope they would. And for some things like basic numbers, as long as you don't overflow, you can't really distinguish between the fact that you're doing them in the field or doing them uh, modulo 2 to the something, as you would in a native CPU architecture. But I feel like this is kind of a leaky abstraction, because as soon as you reach for stuff that you might be used to, if you're trying to hide all of this stuff away from developers, you might like, try to do bit operations, <laughs> and then that's not going to work out very well. Uh or like if you want to support uh, elliptic curves which aren't you know friendly with the specific field you're using, it's going to be a lot slower because you have to sort of like emulate, uh, emulate the structure. And this is why I think Boolean circuits are like quite interesting, because they avoid this leaky abstraction. Because if you can make Boolean circuits cheap, as in you know, Boolean operations don't take as long, like don't take as long as a field operation then you can support a much wider swath of functionality sort of natively. Because, essentially, every functionality is native to Boolean circuits. Like, sure, you can do elliptic curves and and field ops maybe a bit faster with an elliptic circuit, but you can support arbitrary fields in a a Boolean circuit as efficiently. Like, every field is as efficient uh, in a Boolean circuit. Or rather, like, if a field is inefficient, it's because of the fault of the field, not the specific field you're, you're arithmetizing in, if that makes sense. Like, I could have a, a super good field that has like this nice modulus reduction or whatever, but if I'm arithmetizing it over a different field, well, it, it sucks, you know. Whereas a Boolean circuit, you know, everything is equally bad. If, if I'm going to make a joke about that. Because right now, uh, like, there's probably still a bit more overhead, or even like we we don't really have schemes that are as, as far developed for Boolean circuits as we do for like arithmetic circuits. And with Boolean circuits, especially with RAM, you could like support uh, assembly and other things just completely natively. Like you'd take your RISC-V or your x86 program, and it would you know just become a Boolean circuit, as like that. And especially with RAM, because with RAM, as I, as I mentioned before, you can efficiently compile RAM accesses into a Boolean circuit. And so if you do that, then like uh, you know you spit out this nice Boolean circuit for your computation. And it matches exactly the semantics of what you had before, with no overhead related to the arithmetization. In fact, this reminds me of this um, this post by Justin Thaler, Thaler uh, at uh, A16Z. That's where he posted it, because he's, uh, I think, doing some research there. And so he talked about the two sort of overheads in Stark proving, and one of the overheads is in... Is in arithmetization. He calls that the front end overhead. So that's encoding your program in a specific form, and the other one is the back end. And if you think about, you know, if you can support Boolean circuits, there's no overhead to your encoding, basically. There's some, there's some overhead with like RAM because you have that sort of n log n thingy, but you know, otherwise your operations are all natively supported. So you can get if you if you can get you know a back end that's not terrible <laughs> compared to arithmetic circuits you completely eliminate the front-end overhead with Boolean circuits. Especially, I've said especially like five times, but another another thing you could do is you have a model which explicitly combines the automaton thing, which models very well like having registers and a CPU that sort of advance to a state instruction by instruction, but also combine that with a model where you have sort of this list of instructions you're reading, which may be kept secret if you want to, and you have this sort of random access memory. So if you could have like, you know, an encoding like that, that'd be very interesting because then you could keep sort of the succinct representation where you wouldn't have to like unroll loops when you create your circuit. And so you just have the succinct representation as well as like whatever you need to encode, like the ramixes and whatnot. And using that, you could then do pre-processing, you know, much faster if you do pre-processing snark. Or, or I, I don't know if there'd be like a structured computation representation, which would be able to handle RAM like this. But if you could, that would be amazing because then you're, you're, you're basically, the, the representation you need for, for proving would be exactly the same as the representation you can easily compile to from like assembly. And so then if you had that in place, it would be really cool because I could use all the existing infrastructure for compiling high-level languages to assembly, all the optimizations you get by doing that, and then I efficiently translate to something I can do proofs over. And I think this is where the the RISC Zero guys have have identified something interesting because in a lot of their examples you see them compiling Rust with existing tools to RISC V. In fact, they even accept like an ELF binary, which is you know the exact format you can run in like Linux, and they accept that you know, de facto. So really there's very little work done to support new high-level languages because you can just use Rust or C or whatever language you're already using. And you get all of those optimizations, all of that toolchain for free, you just have this tiny bit of work to translate the assembly into your new language. And they're doing it with arithmetic re- re- circuits, but if we had, you know, Boolean circuit snarks which supported that model of computation either be it for processing or some other nice structured form of computation, that that would be like almost the holy grail if you do it efficiently. Because you would be able to support so many languages directly and with no leaky abstractions in terms of the computation model. And so that's why I think Boolean sharks are kind of interesting and why I'm sort of investigating those right now. Hopefully, hopefully we get we we can make the holy grail snark snor- 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 at some point, which you know has logarithmic proof size, you know, really really fast uh, proving uh, logarithmic verification, you know, all that jazz, Boolean circuits. Uh, but there might be impossibility results to that effect, and I think there, like many technologies, it's going to get to the point where there's not nothing perfect, but instead a bunch of things with different trade-offs and, you know, situational advantages. So I think uh, for the foreseeable future, I think arithmetic circuits are going to be pretty dominant in SNARKs, especially when you, you can make choices in the programming languages you use and what curves and, and objects like that and cryptographic primitives you need to support tailored specifically to the proof system. That type integration, for example, if you're making circuits specifically for verifying transactions on Zcash, uh, you're probably gonna get much less overhead than a system that's much more general because you have control on of all layers of the stack. You can control the proving system, you can tweak it so that it works well with the transaction formats and the and the and the circuit you need to prove, etc. And so that kind of tight integration is going to give you much more performant you know, system seen as a whole. But I think I think the Holy Grail snark might be possible. I should probably write write up uh, that idea more because it's it's an interesting It's an interesting thing to think about. So I think that's a a good point to to stop. We talked about everything I wanted to cover, though perhaps a bit more rambly than I'd like. In summary, Boolean circuit snarks are cool, and I'm looking forward to, to diving deeper into them and seeing what they can offer and how you might achieve them. This was the Cold Dive. I was Lucas, a.k.a. Coroner Kirby. And until the next one, I'm wishing you a very pleasant day.